who have to teach skepticism. There's nothing that serves us better in life than being skeptical without being cynical. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is André Picard, health columnist at The Globe and Mail, who was recently recognized by the Canadian Journalism Federation for his exceptional contributions to public discussions of COVID-19. In today's episode, we'll be talking about health, journalism, and decision-making in the public square. André, thanks for joining us. Hi. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about your journalistic career and especially what drew you to public health stories. Well, I guess I have a really boring CV. I left journalism school about 35 years ago and two days later started as a summer student at the Globe and Mail, and I've been there since. I just got hired as a summer student to general assignment reporter, but it was the time of AIDS, so this was the mid-80s. I started covering AIDS, and that's kind of been the arc of my career. That was probably the biggest pandemic in history. So I've been covering that for years, and that just led me in different directions, um, most of them related to public health and public policy. You know, a lot of journalists cover medicine, but I've never really covered medicine. I cover so the politics of health and the policy aspects, which are a lot of people think are a lot more boring, but I think are probably ultimately much more important than the medicine. Certainly uh, in the last 15 months or so, we've seen just how important those more policy-oriented and politically-oriented questions are when it comes to health. In your coverage of public health, how have you seen the use or non-use of behavioral insights. I don't really use that terminology, but when I think about it in those terms, almost everything is about behavior from the individual meeting with a physician, most of the time change your behavior, get you to stop smoking, etc. right up to a, a very global approach. The use of condoms, for example, for AIDS, that's those things like that have changed dramatically. A harm reduction measure. When I think of it in those terms, there's all kinds of behavioral science that goes on, but we don't think of it in those terms. We think of it as communication. We think of it as change people's minds, etc. So I think when I think of it, a lot of it goes on. Some of it good, uh, some of it bad. I think AIDS has kind of led the way on this, you know, changing how the realization, especially early in the pandemic, where there was essentially no treatment, there's still no vaccine 40 years later. So it's been all about controlling people's behaviors, get them to act differently. And it has been dramatically successful. The rates of uh, HIV transmission have gone down 60, 70, 80% over time. And that's all about people changing how they live and how they behave. Perhaps sticking with the context of AIDS here for a moment, is there a specific intervention or small number of interventions that you've seen that really stand out as having performed well and getting people to adjust their behaviors? The important part in there is there's never one thing. We like to look for magic bullets in society, but it's usually an accumulation of a whole bunch of things. One that stands out as particularly successful is testing of pregnant women. So we've essentially almost eliminated the infection of children being born with HIV because we know that we can give a simple cocktail of drugs even right before the birth happens and prevent that transmission. So that's just one example. If you're looking for a big-scale intervention, I think it's our attitudes about condoms. 40 years ago when I started covering this, the, my bosses were squeamish. Oh, we don't talk about that stuff. Now, I do work for a fairly conservative paper, but I, I think that was more reflective of society. We didn't talk about that in polite company, and now there's no hesitation whatsoever. Yeah, it reminds me of a story that I heard long ago, potentially apocryphal, that uh, a bunch of public health workers arrived in some village and were trying to convince the local population about the importance of condoms and teach them how to use them and these kinds of things. They themselves were too squeamish to effectively demonstrate the use of the implement. And so what they ended 
ended up doing is putting the condoms onto a whole bunch of broomsticks to illustrate how to use them. And when they came back months later, they found that all the broomsticks had condoms on them. Clear messaging is probably the most important part of messaging. That's something to explore next. Where are some examples that you've seen that things have just really been bungled, that people really haven't had their eye on what behaviors need to be changed or how it is to effectively change behavior? And we've just been pouring energy and efforts into something that's not moving. I think there's all things where we just don't do enough these days. I think a lot about uh, drug use uh, because of the opioids, the, the overdose pandemic. And I think that's an area where we just haven't explained to the public clearly enough that this whole law and order mentality that we have, it's all well and good to think like that, but it's just totally ineffective. You're not going to change someone's mind by threatening them with jail. If they are addicted to a drug, they're going to do whatever they can to get it. So we can have all the police in the world and it's not going to make a difference. What's going to make a difference, keep people from dying, is ensuring that the drugs they do get are safer. And that again, you know, it's a lot of this stuff makes all a lot of these behavioral things make people uncomfortable because they're counterintuitive. Why would we give out drugs for free? Aren't my kids going to become heroin addicts? No, they have no interest in that. And a very small percentage of people do have interest in that and they are going to do it regardless. So it actually benefits society more largely. There's less spread of illness, less going to be fewer break-ins, people stealing to get money for drugs. I think that kind of thing, we don't do enough explaining to people that this may seem weird to you, but it works and here's why. Yeah, it seems like uh, from time to time we're conflicted between our values of how it is that we feel we ought to behave and our values of what kinds of outcomes we want to see. Drugs is a perfect example of that, that the evidence seems to be pretty strongly in the camp that more policing is not going to make the problem substantially better. But on the other side, on the moral side of the equation, we also don't want to be seen to be uh, endorsing drug behavior. So, you know, we have a moral qualm about embarking on the thing that is actually most likely to work. And sometimes in unintended intuitive ways. So sticking with the idea of drugs there, what are your thoughts on the grand experiment in Portugal about completely changing their approach to managing drug use? I've been a big uh, a fan of harm reduction measures. I think Portugal has done some good stuff. It kind of gets exaggerated how good it is. Their approach has some problems. You have to go through a lot of hoops to be eligible to get your so-called free drugs, etc. They do have very, very punitive measures at certain points in, their, in the process. So it, it's not ideal, but I think the philosophy is one that's a good one, that you're not going to jail your way out of these problems. So I think a lot of jurisdictions could do better. Canada, you know, to be fair, is not bad in the global scheme of things. We have pretty good harm reduction measures. We tend to have them in very small, limited pockets when we get so desperate that we actually do the sensible thing. One of the things that stood out to me about Portugal, and this relates back to the idea you were talking about putting in the effort, is that when they made the conscious decision to switch to a harm reduction strategy, one of the very very clear corollaries that went along with that is that the money that's been spent and the resources that have been spent on policing can't just evaporate. Those need to be channeled into the harm reduction strategies. So we're not giving up on the problem. We're not stopping to care about the problem. We're not just giving all of this moral licensing to engage in behavior that a lot of people find unacceptable. We're just approaching the problem in a really different way. You mentioned money. Money comes in to blur a lot of these issues. Of course, police are going to defend their turf. They want more police. That makes sense. It's a logical, like every profession. So when you start saying, well, we can take that money and spend it differently, that's going to put some noses out of joint. It's easier for police to make emotional arguments. Oh, fewer police, we're all going to be in danger 
danger, etc., even though the evidence doesn't back that up. So these issues do get blurred by self-interest. How have public attitudes and expectations regarding public health changed over the last decades and in all the time that you've been covering this? Public health is interesting. It's the paradox of public health is always when it's working best, it's invisible. So it has this perpetual political problem, right? And we've seen that. We saw really a burst of interest in public health during SARS 15, 16 years ago now, lots of investment. And then it kind of petered out to the point where just before COVID came along, there were huge cuts in public health. Well, they've been doing nothing for a decade. We don't need them. Huge cuts. And then along comes COVID and they now they're struggling with sort of half teams trying to deal with the biggest pandemic in history. So I think that's the fundamental problem with uh, public health is people have to be willing to spend on something that's invisible. Again, it's a hard sell in, in the political environment where it's kind of a two-year political cycle. Who wants to spend money on something that doesn't seem to be giving you immediate reaction? returns. It's a hard one. But uh, on the, the public attitude side, I think people, especially during COVID, have come to, or most people have come to appreciate the importance of it, of having a public health, of having spokespeople who deliver clear information. And I think they've come to understand the importance of communication. That's really the, I won't say the only tool, but it's certainly by far the number one tool of public health is just talking to people and telling them how to protect themselves. The other tool, of course, is is compulsion. So we've seen that with stay-at-home orders and people getting ticketed, although these things have been quite rare. Do you think that there's been a shift in the public's attitude towards what they see as the proper place for being told what to do and being compelled to do something by their government, by public health, etc.? I think we're getting smarter and more sophisticated about this. I think people are realizing that the compulsion, that threats don't work that well that uh, essentially carrots work much better than sticks. And again, I think some of this, a lot of this is driven by what's happening with drugs and overdoses. People are just realizing that that's not working. This is the same with COVID. There's always going to be this certain percentage of people who won't get vaccinated or won't wear their masks. You can't have a cop at every door unless you're China. China got the pandemic under control literally by, in some cases, nailing people into their homes, right? Can't get away with that in a democracy. So I think people are, I think that discussion is getting more sophisticated. You've noted the way that public health is responding to these changes in people's expectations, especially around carrots and sticks. What about communications? What has public health done to continue to modernize its approach to communications over the last few decades? Well, I don't think it's done near enough. I think the fundamental problem we have with public health is they still operate like it's uh, the 1950s. It's almost there's this religious overtone to the way public health communicates. Like, we're going to tell you how to be good people and you better do it. And it's almost like uh, the priest from the pulpit. Public health people don't like to be questioned, even less so than politicians. Not a history there of transparency and of innovation. It's a lot of preachiness. And I think uh, that has come back and bitten them in the behind in the social media age. They really haven't kept up with the, the world of TikTok and WhatsApp, etc. I think public health is desperately behind. And that has driven a lot of our problems during uh, COVID in Canada. Do you think that they're still clinging on to the old deficit model, the idea that like if people aren't behaving properly, it's because they don't understand the problem. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And they just this notion that, well, we just have to, if they didn't understand the first five times, we're going to tell them five more times the same thing. Hey, maybe we should be talking about this differently because people have different views or because other groups like anti-vaccination groups are way more effective in their messaging because they use anecdote and emotion. So, you know, public health, again, is, is really leery to use the stuff that works. They want to be very, they're very cautious. Yeah, it's interesting when I think back about the discussions about vaccinations throughout the course of COVID-19, 
it feels like public health obviously was very keen to get information about how the vaccine developments were progressing and the early data that was coming in about their safety and their effectiveness and this kind of thing. But they weren't really mounting any kind of campaign to keep the public up to date with how those things were going. It's not like people who were anti-vaxxers or even vaccine hesitant were waiting for the white hanky to drop to start their messaging campaigns. They were well out ahead by the time the public health got around to thinking that now's the time we should start talking to the public. And the idea that I'm perhaps reading too much into this, but the idea that seemed to be underlying that is like, well, once the government has decided that they're safe, we're just going to tell people that it's safe and they'll believe us. Yeah. And they seem to be shocked when, uh, you know, their headline, when there are things like blood clots come up, they're like, well, why is the media talking about this? They should only say nice things. So I think there is this, maybe it's not a naivete, but just an old fashioned way of thinking. We should just tell people what's good for them. And that's that. They don't need too much information. I don't think that's true. We're having that debate now about uh, vaccine lotteries for example. I'm a fan of them because I think you have to pull out all the stops. I think, you know, these sober appeals to civic duty can only take us so far, especially in this modern world where there's a lot of doubt and about institutions, etc. So you can't just say, oh, dude, everybody should do the right thing. And if they don't, well, tisk tisk doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah, you mentioned the media and, and we've been focusing a lot on public health up until now. But of course, public health is only one piece of what is an increasingly busy and micro-targeted information landscape. Can you tell us a bit about this so-called infodemic yeah, so the infodemic being the, the spread of a lot of uh, false messaging, uh, things that are untrue, partially untrue, etc. And it's a huge challenge with the modern internet uh, world. And it's something, you know, I started my career before we had the internet, the good old days, some people call them, but they weren't that great. I think we're in the infancy of understanding how to react to this. So there's a lot of challenges out there that I, I just don't know what the solution is. We're going to have to figure, you know, younger people like you are going to have to figure them out. Public health certainly, and governments certainly have to do a better job of acknowledging that there are these forces at work, uh, talking about people, about why they exist, you know, why are there anti-vaccine groups? I think they're actually still a very tiny minority. They've always been there, but they've got this megaphone now to make them look bigger. We in the media often confound hesitancy and being opposed to vaccination. I think hesitancy is a good thing. I think people should ask a lot of questions and question everything they put in their body, whether it's a vaccine or can of Coca-Cola. We should be teaching people to be more questioning, but that doesn't mean that you embrace something ridiculous in return. So I think it's tough to navigate the modern world. I do think that younger people do a much better job of it than us older people. We know without question that the worst people perpetuating falsehoods are kind of the 50 plus group on Facebook talking to their friends about they just swallow in nonsense hook, line, and sinker. And so we got to work on the folks who were there before the internet age who just don't understand how to navigate this. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you're advocating something like a more critical embrace, a higher level of comfort with ambiguity, with the fact that there might not be a clear line between the right answer and the wrong answer, but you still need to hedge your bets and choose the worst of all evils. Right. Ambiguity is important. I also think that education is really the key here. We can't teach people everything. Knowledge is changing perpetually, but we can teach them how to understand information, where it comes from, what are the vested interests. To me, that's the thing we don't talk about with this small, loud anti-vaccine movement. They're always out there denouncing big pharma, 
making profits. And that movement is all about money. It's about selling something else. It's total nonsense, but it's very, very profitable. And we have to talk about it in those terms. I don't care if you hate big pharma, that's fine, but you should hate anti-vaxxers just as much because they actually make way more money and they have way fewer rules. Let's talk about it in those terms if you want to talk about it. Yeah, let's dig in a little bit around education. So media literacy is something that I think has entered the public lexicon much more since I finished school decade plus ago. And, you know, certainly when I was a younger person in school, coming up through school, that just wasn't on the radar at all. Is this something that's finding its way into education curricula? I think it's getting in there slowly but surely. I hear some positive news, but I think it really has to be a priority, whether it's primary school or whether it's medical school, postgraduate studies, we have to stop just trying to fill people's heads with stuff and we have to teach them how to learn. That's what I think the future of education is, perpetual learning and how to do it, what sources to trust, etc. And I think we're starting to do that, but uh, we really have to pick it up. It's way more important to know how to understand information than it is to understand geometry, for example. Being someone who lives in the mediascape, what would you say are the most essential skills from an education perspective that you'd want to see people coming out with as kind of the basic toolkit of citizenship, if you will? We have to teach skepticism. There's nothing that serves us better in life than being skeptical without being cynical. So you have to find that balance of skepticism. We have to teach people to understand the why. Why are people saying this? If something is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. There's some really basic rules that have existed for time immemorial. Cavemen knew that if something was too good to be true, it was probably too good to be true, right? There's probably a, something bad lurking around the corner if there's a big a pile of food there. I think just that really, really basic stuff is important. Moving now to journalists and publishers, what actions can they take to help to tame the infodemic? We can do a few things. One of the most interesting things about the pandemic has been the real appetite for what we call service journalism. So not breaking news, he said, she said, but just like, where do I get my vaccine? Why is it different to get Moderna after Pfizer? Is that bad? So just this, we've been bombarded by real practical questions from people. So I think we have to do a lot more of that. I always caution people, we're not in the business of education, we're in the business of information. And those can be very different things. But I do think we have to embrace some of that education component and people want it, that's important. I think we have also have to get away from our traditional, there are two sides to a story business. You know, everything in the media is about conflict, essentially, whether we're writing about sports or politics, etc. And if that's the basis of, the, of everything you do, then why are we surprised that politics is polarized and that the public is polarized about vaccines? We promote polarization. So I think we have to get away from that. And again, write more Skeptically, what does the media do the worst of all is the most important thing is context. We don't contextualize things. We have our screaming headlines, but we don't give the context of why we're talking about this, why it's been talked about for 40 years. And we have to spend a little more effort on that. It's interesting that you bring up the way that uh, politics is covered and this idea that balanced journalism requires setting up the two sides to the story. So much of the behavioral discussion of that is that, for instance, if there's strong consensus on one side of the story, that often gets lost. And so you end up suggesting that there's a false equivalence between these two sides. I hadn't thought of it before in the context of polarization. 
that the fair and balanced approach that always sets up the, well, these are the two sides will necessarily lead to them or not necessarily, but it's very, very likely to lead to those two sides being caricatured in very confrontational and antithetical ways. And that's something that for a brief and shining moment early in the pandemic, we seem to get away from. So I was amazed and impressed to see the quality of dialogue in the federal parliament in Canada really, really elevated early on in the crisis. And all of a sudden, parliamentarians really were all rowing in the same direction, not towards anybody's partisan end, but actually just kind of putting the partisanship aside and putting the common good ahead of everything else. What was your perspective or your take on that at the time? Yeah, exactly like you. I thought there was an amazing time of cooperation, not only between the federal parties, but between the provinces and the federal government. We saw this unprecedented cooperation and the public loved it, right? There's no time in the pandemic when the communication was better than then, back in March, when there was not everybody was saying the same thing, but they were saying it in the same way, in a calm, uh, logical way. Uh, there wasn't this petty partisanship about, well, he's only saying this because he's liberal, etc. And I don't understand why there isn't more of that in politics. Well, I, I do understand because we don't reward it, right? You don't get rewarded if you cooperate with the government. A lot of why have we returned to the partisanship? Because government's popularity soared and the opposition's got forgotten. So there's some reason that this happens, but it was a refreshing moment mm -hmm. we don't see too often in politics. So what is it that we can do other than triggering a perpetual global crisis to get more of that? I think like as voters, we have to reward them. You know, if a, a government has a policy and it's actually a good policy, there's nothing wrong with the opposition saying, yeah, we would have done that if we were in power too. I think the public likes that. And then you say, but we also would have done this. We need more of that sort of good on you, but... Now let's get on to something else. Now that we've read to this, instead of these sort of petty distinctions that, that make no difference. Let's talk about social media. So when you first started your career, that was just not even anyone's wildest dreams, I think. If the internet wasn't around and common currency yet, certainly social media was just a pipe dream. Now the world has changed a lot and social media platforms lean in structurally to this division. You know, we were talking earlier about critical perspectives and skepticism. And that's absolutely antithetical to the way that social media platforms are set up. They are all about segmenting people and getting them to sit cleanly within their little segmented boxes. What role do you think social media has in driving the infodemic? And, and where do you see the opportunities for them to start to roll that back? Well, I, I think there's no question they're the number one driver of uh, the infodemic, of distrust in institutions, etc. I think this is all driven by the big platforms like Facebook. The stuff that's on there is just, it's appalling, a lot of it. I always find it odd, like people are always attacking, oh, the mainstream media is doing this. I mean, Mainstream media has virtually no voice compared to these big platforms anymore. They don't get called out enough for it. Creating platforms that allow neo-Nazis to talk openly, uh, racist, misogynist content is just overwhelming a lot of the times on social media. And we have to call them to account. I think there does have to be more regulation. I think there has to be more antitrust measures. They've just become too big and powerful for the good of society. We There were times when we broke up uh, media conglomerates, and that seems almost uh, naive now. In retrospect, you know, that had so little power compared to, to the 
Facebooks of the world. I think this is essential to, to fundamentally to democracy, to getting some control of, of these platforms. I'd like you to explore the idea of antitrust a little bit more. What is it that you think is, is so important there and will be so effective here? Well, I just think we need a variety of, of voices and platforms. And whenever you have one just dominant company in a sector, it just lends itself to abuse. Facebook is big brother. Like if I type something into my Google search, within seconds, I have an ad, you know, if I type in Aruba, I'm going to have within seconds ads popping up about sales of flights to Aruba. Like it's creepy. Kids still read 1984, the Orwell book, but they're living it. And I, I don't think people recognize just how insidious this is. It's unhealthy. It can be abused. And we can't just trust that Mark Zuckerberg's a good chap. That's not good enough. That's not democracy. We have to have measures in place to ensure there isn't abuse. And I, I think there is a lot of it. Yeah, so we can't just rely on the public good being something that will necessarily fall out of exploring profit motives, that we need to more structurally embed the public good into the business models of social media, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, we certainly can't count on benevolent billionaires. That's uh, History tells us that that never gets us to a good place. Well, let's start with social media at the individual level and the way that we engage with these platforms. What is it that we can do on a front lines, trenches basis to start at least getting at this problem? I think at the very most basic level, think for two seconds before you retweet or, or share something on your social media platforms, especially, you know, offensive content, uh, really dubious content. I think it comes down to pretty basic things. We just uh, add, we throw a lot of fuel onto fires just thoughtlessly. So I think a lot of that... Uh, individuals can do, but individual change is only get us that far. I think we're kind of being overwhelmed by bots and really organized campaigns now of hatred and of trying to change public policies that are just done by machines. When I'm on my social media platforms, I'm wondering like what percentage of these are actual real people anymore? I'm not sure it's a very large number. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation on the podcast with David Rand recently. And we were talking about this issue of how to be more critical in the way that you engage and especially resharing and commenting and stuff on content that's there. And one of the things that he mentioned is that people, if you ask them what their priorities are and news that they're looking for, including on social media, accuracy will often come out quite highly. But then if you observe their behaviors, accuracy doesn't seem to be very high on the priority list in terms of the tacit priorities that they make clear through what choices they make. And one of the things that he's been working on, which I found really interesting, is having a little pop-up that says, how accurate do you think this information is? And just asks you to rate it. And it basically doesn't matter what it is that that rating tells you. Just asking someone the question makes it more salient to them and they will continue for a little while to focus more on accuracy of information and their resharing behaviors. So that's something that I think resonates with what you're talking about here, that you need to slow down and be a little bit more critical, but also that there are structural supports that can be put in place to make it easier for you to do that. If you find yourself in a firestorm on Twitter, taking a breath and stepping back from the keyboard and assessing how important is this really? It's not the most intuitive thing to do. The intuitive thing to do is to let your blood boil just like the blood is boiling of all the other people who are participating in this and you get swept right along with it. I appreciate your comment that you said, you know, there's a limit to what it is that individuals can do, not because individual actions are not important, but because the context that we find ourselves in are going to be really strong determinants of the kinds of actions that we can take on a consistent basis. It's just too hard to paddle so hard upstream. I was going to say exactly what you said. There's a lot of value in just taking a breath. I've noticed on Twitter now they have uh, something that pops up. They say, uh, do you want to read this story before you retweet it? The funny thing about that is I find the only time I get that pop is when I'm actually retweeting one of my own stories. So I always find that ironic. But it is, I think, that kind of thing, just uh, 
getting people to catch their breath is a good thing. Monte, thank you very much. You've covered a lot of points here that I think are worth emphasizing. We've been talking about the infodemic and especially in the context of health and really come at it from a number of angles. So we talked about in the context of journalism, the value of service journalism that's really come back to the fore in COVID. And also the idea that a balanced story that necessarily pits two sides as inherently against each other is an idea that needs challenging. We might need to rethink the way that stories are structured and framed because of the oppositions that it creates in education as well, teaching skepticism and not cynicism. I really appreciated that. Cynicism naturally brings me around to politicians. Something that politicians can do is not feed that cynicism. And in terms of the more positive prescriptions that you made, not fearing to agree with people across the aisle, that we can do more yes and. We don't always need to be doing the no but. In terms of social media platforms, you know the challenges around business models and the importance of integrating the public good somewhere into that business model. For individuals, especially as they're engaging with social media, taking a breath, thinking for a couple of seconds before you retweet or share, that's really opening up the space for you to put your skepticism into play. Even if you have great education and you've developed these skills, if you never actually mobilize them, you won't have gained very much. And coming back around finally to public health, getting away from the old school pulpit style communication and starting to embrace the fact that often it's not just a lack of information or a lack of understanding that is driving people's behaviors, but their decision contexts are much more complex than that. And that you need to be engaging in two-way communication in order to understand their context well enough to be positioning yourself to communicate and, and structure policies effectively for those people. The important thing that I forgot to mention is I think people have to be willing to pay for good information. If we want good media, it has to be able to be monetized. During COVID, it was really interesting. A lot of media, especially at the outset, removed their paywalls. I work for a paper that has paywalls. And people gobbled it up. And that's good, but that could only last so long. You have to pay the bills. You have to keep the lights on, etc. People really have to be willing to pay for stuff that has value. Every day, I get emails from people saying, oh, it's public health. It should be free. And I'm like, well, it costs money. I said, do you go into Starbucks and complain that there's a coffee paywall? Because we have to start thinking in those terms. If you value something, pay for it. And the other thing is you really have to wonder if something is free, is it really free? It comes at a cost. It comes at the bombardment of Facebook ads, them prying into your life in every second so they can target ads at you. You know, what? If why is hate speech free and good information is not? Because people have an agenda. Nothing that's free costs comes at no cost. So I think that's a really, really important element. Uh, I've been heartened by the fact that, for example, my paper, has seen its subscription soar during COVID, which is good. I think people have this recognition that you do pay for information, but it's not enough. People have that view. I think it's important to remember that if you're getting something and not paying for it, there's probably somebody else who's paying for it and they're paying for you to get it for free. Or you're paying for it in ways you don't imagine. Anyway, Andre, thank you very much for taking some time to chat with us today. This has been a really, really enlightening conversation. And thanks again for all the great work that you've done at the Globe and Mail and for Canada and beyond during COVID. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work.